I think we did it. Scott, can you hear me? Are we? I think we're through. I think we're we did coming it. through. Yeah, we're here. Holy we're here. Shit. I got to admit, at a certain point, I didn't think we'd be able to make it happen. Yeah, no, dude, the signal strength's 10 out of 10. I think it's time for the ad read. I think we can do this. All right. Well, uh, <clears throat> this week's episode of the Cast is brought to you by our benevolent overseers in the opposite realm. The opposite realm, where everything is upside down. That's right, Scott, and boy, have we got a great one lined up for you today. Before we get to that, though, we need to give a shout-out to Altair 4's premium podcast network, Gorezone Productions. Gorezone has been going strong on Altair 4's airwaves for over 500 years, delivering sharp, insightful, entertaining podcasts from a number of your favorite podcast production teams, like us. That's right. So head on over to Gorezone Productions at altair-4.org to sign up for your monthly membership. And don't forget to use the code KUNTSCAST99 to get 2% off your annual subscription. And with all that said, on with the show. Hi, I'm Dean Kuntz. GH3? It's a cold. You're a research animal. That's why you're so smart. I do this for the sake of eternity. No! Did you check the refrigerator for any severed heads? Don't be alarmed, Mrs. Harris. I am Proteus. If I'm to tell the world, I need to see all of you, not just a drone. Hello and welcome back to the Cast on the Gorezone Podcast Network. I'm Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today certainly needs no introduction, but we're pleased to have him here. We're going to give him one anyway. After spending 25 years earning the worldwide king of prop comedy crown, he went on to co-write the Oscar-nominated Help, My Girlfriend is Sick with his wife and fellow prop comic, Emily Gordon. He can next be seen in Zack Snyder's highly anticipated Justice League 5, where he'll be playing the iconic character of Bouncing Boy, a role which required him to gain over 200 pounds. Today, he's on the Coons cast to talk about one of the better known adaptations of Dean's work, Phantoms. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Coons cast stage, Mr. Kamel Nanjiani. Kamel, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Very, very excited. Been a, been a Coons head from way back. Yeah, we all have. I mean, we wouldn't be doing the show otherwise. You know, this thing we mentioned in, in your, your intro about uh, the new Justice League, um, we, we aren't intimately familiar with uh bouncing boy but i'm wondering if like did they ever was there ever a conversation about just sticking you in a suit rather than having you actually gain all this weight well it was very important to me you know i was playing sort of the first south asian superhero in the dc universe and it was really important to me that i looked the part so when they said you want to be bouncing boy i said all right i'm gonna go buy a bunch of pies and i'm gonna get to work right now you know and <laughs> i gotta be careful because you know i don't want to give away too many spoilers you know how dc is with their stuff oh yeah, yeah. uh but yeah gain gained ultimately ended up gaining you know i wanted to gain 225 only get got to about 197 but really you know the camera adds uh 10 pounds so i think i broke 200 extra pounds uh, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's not easy to get rid of. Yeah, like are are you 
I mean, are you, are you contracted for multiple movies where you're going to have to keep this on or? Yeah. You know, you sign on for six movies. So, uh, but, but, but I can't like, I won't be able to work right. in between those movies. So it's right. going to be a lot of yo-yoing happening, a lot of pies and then a lot of, uh, broccoli so currently in a broccoli stage and i'll tell you <laughs> the pie stage is better <laughs> yeah i gotta i gotta assume was there a go-to pie that like you just never got sick of well the one that you gotta go with right because there's a lot of pies but here's the problem a lot of pies got fruit in them right you got your apple pie you got your peach now fruit is healthy that's not going to help you get fat. That's not going to help you gain weight. Right. So right. the pie you got to go with, you got to go with your cream pies. And if you're going to go, you got to go with the pecan pie. If you can get a Southern style pecan pie, that's basically a pie that then is full of butter, lard, and sugar. Like that gooey mm. stuff that's there, right. that goes right to your butt. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the most bang for your buck in terms of pie, you know. Apple pies, that's just going to get you that's just going to get you healthier. And that's not what right. Bouncing Boy is all about. Yeah, totally. Now, I, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but you did work with a guy named Frank Remick. He, was, he worked with people like Russell Crowe and Chris Farley back in the day to get them into, you know, kind of chubby shape. Was there any, like, special tips he gave you, like, beyond just eating pie? Or was that, like, his number one? He said, you know, he's got the easiest fucking job in the world. He just says, <laughs> eat. If you're not eating, eat. If you're eating, keep eating. Um, You know, I did that thing where every half hour you got to set an alarm so you can eat in the middle of the night. You know, and those are some of the strategies that uh, Frank Remick brought to me. Uh, Ultimately, the hard thing is the chewing. That gets in the Mm. way, right? Because you want to get the food inside you as quickly as possible. Chewing is an intermediate step. So what you got to do is you got to get the pie. You got to blend it. Get a big-ass straw. And just suck it all down. So that's what I did every night. And if it's too cold, that's going to coagulate in there. So, you know, I'm just all night drinking hot pies. I heard that when, uh, I forget the name of the movie now, but when Jared Leto did that thing about um, where he played the guy that shot John Lennon. Mm-hmm. He he had whoever he was working out with had him on a like a, a feeding tube that he would sleep with. You know, so there was no alarm to wake up to, but like every half hour on the uh, on the hour, it would blast about uh, like a pound of mashed potatoes down his throat. But then he ran into that coagulation problem, you know, where yeah, it, was, sure. it was blocking up the tube or whatever. And then he's choking in the middle of the night. And so I think if I were you, I would have taken the uh, the same approach on this. I think so. I mean, first of all. The last thing you want is to get a mashed potato feeding tube and then a year later no one remembers the name of your fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. definitely yeah, that's fair. definitely not the outcome you're looking for. But you know, I I, I think this is gonna I think this one's gonna definitely make a mark. Yeah. And it'll be worth it. You know, this movie's gonna be uh, spectacular. One of the more highly. God say more. Don't, uh, don't I'm not gonna. I'm not. I'm not fishing for you know details. I'm just saying uh, it's probably the most anticipated movie of the year. So we're we're really excited to see that. Me now, too. I guess we should start off with uh, since this is your first time on the show, uh, your your Dean Koontz origin story. How did how did Dean first come into your life? What were some of the books you read? I mean, you know, I sort of started where everyone starts, which is um, his his first novel, Star Quest. Um, I don't have to tell you, but you know, it's basically about like like in a universe that had been ravaged by a thousand years of interplanetary warfare between the star shattering Ramagans and the equally voracious Satessans, There seemed 
now, but one thing that might bring destruction to an end. And that would be, of course, the right catalyst in the hands of the right people. Of course. The right catalyst could well be the individualist rebel. Let's say him together, his name together. Tome. Tome. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, that's embarrassing. I blanked on it for a second. Yeah, that's so. Uh, so obviously, that's where I started, you know, um, and just immediately, immediately fell in love. You know, of course, my favorite character in it was the um, fearfully armored instrument of mechanical warfare, the man tank Jumbo 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Still got a Jumbo 10 poster on my wall. Uh, so, yeah, that's 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 where I started. Wow. And the movies, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, and as I'm sure you know, the movies have been sort of a mixed bag. But the adaptation you've selected, which we'll get to in a minute, Phantoms is, you know, that's like mid-career Dean. Eric was, I didn't, I didn't actually realize this because I'd been counting some of the earlier things he did, including the the one right before this was House of Thunder, which is, I would probably argue that's more of a horror novel than anything else. But Eric was telling me that. Phantoms is genuinely considered to be his first full horror novel. Is that correct, Eric? Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's the, at least the one that his publisher wanted to to brand as like a full horror thing. You know, which is, I mean, obviously, if you know the artistry that Dean puts into his work, you know, he can't be just put in one box. But his publisher at the time thought that horror was a, a fatty wanted to be associated with so he mm-hmm. was like you know dean you have to make a straight horror book in that you know phantoms is way more of a you know a, a more traditional horror title um even though it's supernatural horror it's also sci-fi which you know dean is is very well known for dipping into with stuff like demon seed and so he's hit that kind of vibe before but this is the first one that they were really trying to market him as the you know the master of horror well he he kind of pulls out all the stops there in terms of making the leap to horror because there's a lot of Lovecraft in this book. There is, for sure. You know, they strip most of that out of the movie, but I, I you know, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, well, let me ask you guys, um, wh- where did you guys start? Have you met Dean? Uh, I haven't, but Eric had. Eric, you go first because you actually met him. Yeah, well, I, you know, as regular fans of this podcast will know, I'm a huge Disney Parks fan, and I went to Disneyland once, and ev- as everybody, of course, knows as well, Dean lives <laughs> in Orange County. Went to Disneyland and, once. You went to Disneyland more than once, my friend. Well, I, I, I've been to Disneyland multiple times, but I was there one time where Dean was there. He was there with one of his uh, golden retrievers, his emotional support animals, and they were... They were just standing in line for the teacups. And, you know, of course, I had to make a fool of myself. And I went up and shook his hand. And he, you know, he was everything that you'd want a Dean Koontz to be. He was just this very laid back, you know, quiet, meek guy. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but he, he had like sharpness in his eyes. You know, his eyes were very easy to fall into, actually. And it was it frightened me a little bit, to be honest. But it also made me really excited um, and then I let him get on his way and he rode the teacups, you know, over. I saw him in that teacups line like three times that day. It must be his favorite ride there. That's weird because that's your favorite ride at Disneyland quite famously. Didn't you have yeah, the, that, the that or Dumbo? I kind of the... go, I kind of go, you know. Well, I remember it like on Twitter when you had the background from the teacups as your, right. wasn't your like header on Twitter for many years. 
Well, yeah. I mean, you spin around super fast. What's not to love about the teacup? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. get to throw up while you're in the teacup. No, no. <laughs> yeah. It, when, it's really when else exciting. are you going to get that opportunity? That's that's true. Yeah, it's it's a, it's probably the biggest thrill right there, and so it's no question why that's Dean's favorite. They should do. But like, what about you, Scott? I don't think we've ever talked about this. What what was your? Uh, well, I, I didn't know what your I, Dean. I, admit, I well, I have mentioned this on the show before, so I might have been on my phone. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. But in two thousand three, when Odd Thomas came out, I went to. I we found out Dean was going to be at a Borders in in houston mm. doing like a signing so my girlfriend at the time and i we drive down there we parked a pretty good distance away which is going to be relevant to the story in a second like five six blocks away or something so we could go have lunch beforehand and then you know you just boop, 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 mosey over to the bookstore but then um after we had lunch we get out of there and i shit you not we turned like one corner and that's when we ran into the barricades there were barricades set up and they were having to like basically direct a crowd because there were a lot of fucking people for this, for this signing. And it was clear to us, like we didn't want to admit it to ourselves in the moment. I don't think, but I, I, at any rate, I knew like immediately we're not getting in there. So we only saw like he pulled up in a limo at some point and the, the publisher rep uh, got out He's got a, you know, a police escort or security or whatever. He got out of the the limo, but the, the crowd was such that we could only see his hair from that distance. And then, you know, so I, I watched the top of his head. Well, it's iconic. It's hard to miss. So, I mean, if you saw the best part of him, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's the closest I've been to him. But we're hoping to eventually, you know, hopefully he'll take notice of the show. And we've done 80 episodes of this goddamn thing. Like sooner or later, we're going to end up on his radar and, and hopefully we can get him. So. Eric, let's talk a little bit about Phantoms, you know, in the context of Dean's career. Like, when did this one come out? This was published in 1983. Um, He he was very inspired. You know, Dean will often write character first. That's his his, uh, usual go-to. He starts a book. You know, Odd Thomas is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. He will have an idea for a character, and that's what will drive his story here with phantoms it was the other way around it was it was plot first he thought of this great idea he was inspired by the uh angie cooney i apologize if i'm mispronouncing that angie cooney lake village disappearance mm-hmm. uh you know which is there there's a whole series of this and you can he talks about it in the book and and uh, they go into detail in the movie peter o'toole has this great monologue about it uh, but there's all these cases documented in human history where whole towns will have just up and disappear with no, uh, you know, with no reason behind it. Roanoke is a very famous example that everybody cites. Now, most of these are, have been all debunked and they figured out why, you know, why all these people disappeared. But, um, uh, but especially at the time, these were huge mysteries and he was fascinated by that. And so when his publisher was like, Hey man, you know, why don't you make our jobs a little easier and do a, just a straight horror thing? Uh, he said, you know what? I have a really cool idea for that. And that is what if people go into this town and everything's deserted? It's a great, creepy idea. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's one of his most popular books. It's one of, uh, you know, I think that that struck a chord with a lot of his readers at the time, for sure. I've got a question. Camille, you, you grew up overseas. Um, I'm curious if like the Roanoke story, uh, made its way over there to you. Like, like no, do you have, but, do you, or, or, and if not, do you have like similar legends where? No, not that I know of, but I did hear about it a lot. Emily was actually 
pretty obsessed with the Roanoke thing. So she's like, but I think I might have read it. You know, now that I think about it, you know, you get those like books of the unexplained. I had like a ton of like those books. I had like UFO books and and that kind of stuff. And it might have popped up in one of those, but I didn't really know very much about it until I came here. And if I'm right, I think it was somewhat recently that they figured out that it was just a tribe merged with another tribe, which is the most boring answer possible. Right. It's weird, I think, how... You want it to be phantoms-based disappearance, but (laughs) instead it's just they met some people and became friends. Boring. But you didn't have any, like, disappearance stories in your your home country? Not, like, entire tribes disappearing like that that I know of, no. That would seem to be just, like... Guessing, it seems like that's a thing that would be universal amongst cultures. I bet there is because, you know, we have like a pretty old civilization there. There's a lot of like uh, relics and, you know, old, old stuff that they keep finding. So I'm sure civilizations have disappeared over our history. We've, we've done a lot of stuff, you know, we've been around a while. Well, what's your favorite weird history story from Pakistan? I don't really, I can't think of one. I know the Indus Valley civilization was like this huge civilization. Well, like, just for instance, we have Bigfoot. We got the Bermuda Triangle. I guess that maybe we don't. Oh, sure. You know, like, do you have anything like that? Well, we have gins. We have a lot of gins. You know what, you know what gins are. Mm -hmm. Wishmaster is a gin. But that's really from basically our culture. So it's these, it's from Arab and Muslim mythology. It's sort of a you know, a creature that lives in another realm who visits and they can be good or bad. Actually, mostly they are good, even though in pop culture, sometimes they're portrayed as bad. Mm. And they're sort of like under angels above humans. That's like their place in the hierarchy. So jinns are like a very, very big part of our, like like you hear, if when you're a kid, you hear stories of jinns. My dad used to tell me since I was a little kid that when I go to bed, Jins have a tea party under my bed. And <laughs> that doesn't sound terrifying. sinister. It's so, it terrified me. My dad, by the way, great guy. We're very, very close. But he spent a good part of my childhood just trying to scare me as much as he could. He used to do this thing where he'd gotten like a boombox from somewhere. Like he bought this boombox and he was very excited. And he would like record stuff on that. He got a little mic and he would record like, he would say, like, come here, I'm going to come and get you. And then he'd hide it around the house and hit play. And then he'd be like, who's saying that? The whole family's here. Wait, did he just – he said your name. And I have a brother. My brother was safe from this. It's just, like, my name. <laughs> and then I was terrified of the dark for years and years and years. And then they had to train me to, like, not be terrified of the dark. I mean, I was terrified of the dark until I was, like – 14 or something were you more susceptible to this than your brother is that why you were the you know like the 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 victim yeah i think so because i was always like a i was kind of a very nervous kid and my brother was like very cool you know and i watched a lot of horror movies as a kid too like i loved watching horror and um and i read a bunch i don't know if you know this writer there's a guy named stephen king I read a bunch of his work yeah, when I was yeah. a kid too. Of course, of course, Dean stuff too, and uh, and so there was just a lot of stuff already churning in there that my dad could like very easily access and activate, and he really did that. It was uh, it took me years and years to get over my fear of 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 the dark. It was definitely good cop bad cop. Like my mom would 
try and be like, there's no gins under your, they're not having a tea party. And my dad's like, really? That's not, I looked under there and there were a bunch of gins having a tea party, but if you want to <laughs> lie to them. Right. It's funny that you bring up Stephen King because we're not big fans of Mr. King around these parts, but Eric was telling me something kind of interesting before the show about a book he apparently wrote in, when was it? In the mid 80s? Yeah, it was, it was it was definitely after Phantoms. Um you know, it, it's not very well read as most of King's stuff isn't, but uh it's this book called It and if you ever like actually Wait, look at it, it called It IT just the word it name. just it yeah 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 it's a lazy title and uh, and there's a reason why nobody read it. This thing's a doorstop. It's it's so wordy. Like I, I couldn't get through it. I tried to read it when I was a kid, but like most King stuff, I couldn't get through it. But uh, I read on Goodreads like a synopsis of it. And if you do that, you can like obviously tell that Stephen King ripped off like most of his core ideas from Phantoms because there's like voices and drains. There's like an ancient evil that lives under a, a city. And where is he? Rhode Island, I think. Yeah, somewhere up. It's 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 northeast. It's northeast. northeast. I was gonna say Jersey for some reason, but that doesn't sound. It's a small town wherever wherever it is, and it's you know it's like great, cool way to be late to the scare again, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) That guy. I don't know what to. You mentioned it's a doorstop, and um, like the only thing I know about Stephen King is that he writes like these these huge novels. Yeah, the only thing short about that novel is the title. Right. (laughs) Maybe it was meant as a joke. We don't know. But, you know, Dean always keeps it three to five hundred. And I like that about. Right. You know, he understands what the the length of a novel should be. You know, you get in, you get out. That's it. You don't need to get, you know, lost in all the details and, and world building of a thing. Just fucking, you know, let's get this over with. But that's weird to hear about. And it's also weird to hear about because there was actually a plagiarism case involving this novel. Oh, really? In 92, I guess there was like an outfit called Zebra Books. And um, they published... Sounds legit. <laughs> they, well, they published two books. It was a writer named Pauline Dunn, who is actually two sisters named Dawn Pauline Dunn. Say that three times fast. And uh, Susan Hartzell. They were collaborating under a pen name and had written these two books. And one of Dean's readers like read these books. One of them's called The Crawling Dark, and the other one is called Demonic Color. Also a See, tale. now that's that's how you name a book. Oh, Those well, are good names. Well, Demonic <laughs> Color? I don't know. Yeah. I like Crawling Dark, but Demonic Color... Crawling Dark? Great. Yeah. Better than it. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely true. Well, anyway, it turned out that uh, these ladies had like completely plagiarized whole passages from Dean's phantoms and uh they got taken to court and uh they had to give up their advances on both books zebra publishing apparently had to place an ad in publishers weekly acknowledging that they had ripped off the maestro of shivers how embarrassing is that so i'm surprised that i'm surprised to hear this about uh what's his name stephen king if he did this with it that that didn't draw more attention but, well, that book's so damn long, the lawyers probably couldn't get through it to find out how much <laughs> yeah. he stole. Man, and he's also just not worth going after. You know, I mean, this he's... Why punch down? Yeah, exactly. Like, King is... He's off doing his own thing. He's not really hurting anyone. He's entertaining the sort of people that I'm not hanging out with anyway. So it's it's 
And, and, and listen, and I, I also want, this is a good, a good point to talk about how, you know, we've made jokes in the past about toilet papering Stephen King's house. Right. And we've had people right. like take us seriously on that. Don't do that. Toilet paper's in, it's, it's a real commodity right now. It's in short supply uh, for one. And for two, you know, we don't want to beat up on, on some poor old dude. It's not a joke at his expense, basically. And, and also he could, he's probably sold enough books that he could hire someone to clean it up. Frankly, do we have anything else we want to say on the novel before we get to the adaptation? I have some stuff to say, but it's mostly in in how the novel stacks up against the movie. Uh, But one thing that I I think it would be good to kick off the discussion is that in the book, uh, the two sisters at the the center of it, there's a younger sister and an older sister in the movie. They're just kind of adult women. But in the book, Lisa is is a, a teenager. And I think that's way more scary to have you know, kind of this older sister and and her looking after being the caregiver of a younger sister going into this empty town, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where there's voices on the wind saying, help me. And there's pieces of people (laughs) lying around and like, it's way, it's way creepier. They cast Rose McGowan in this part. And I guess that that was just all part of the, the dimension era. She was all over the place back then, you know, she was acting more than, than she did now. And, um, I think this was, this is after scream, right? Right. Or is it and just- both her and Leah Schreiber, who were in the movie, were both in the, the Scream. Oh, I yeah. never put that together. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Leah Schreiber, always great. Yeah. But yeah, no, that, that's that's a choice. I guess that they probably made it just for logistical reasons. You, know, you don't have to pay for schooling. You don't have to have shorter hours or whatever when you're uh, right, working right, with two right. adults. But, uh, you know, I don't know. That seemed like such a core angle of of this book which again is one of dean's best books i mean listen it's not his most highbrow book of course but it's like just in terms of a quick pulp read you can read this book in in a flash it's one of his most entertaining things but it's so engaging because of the sister relationship also you know if leah schreiber's character had been a creep to like a much he's it's already very creepy right that is like a weirdly a big part of the movie he keeps saying Want to see something? He says it like ten times. Right. Uh, it's a very different vibe. It's already bad, but it's worse if it's someone who's younger. You know what that right. reminds me of? When he kept doing it in the movie, it was remind- reminding me of the Steven Spielberg segment in the Twilight Zone movie, where James or not James Brooks, fucking Albert uh, Brooks? Albert Brooks, yeah, uh, asks Dan. Dude, that Ackley was all Landis, maybe. No, I'm pretty sure it was Spielberg. Um, oh, Spielberg did. Which one yeah, did he, he do in he that did, one? I forget. Spielberg did the wraparound segments. Okay. Landis did the the old folks home one, and okay. Dante did that. Well, we don't need to litigate all that, but Joe Dante did the uh, the Gremlin one. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know, man. That's kind of a sore spot for me because I feel like you know he's he's coasting on the success of Gremlins. You know, now he's given this this other thing and. He brought gremlins into it. It kind of felt like too self-referential to me. Right. You know, I understand I'm in the minority on that. You know, everyone loves. uh, I mean, we all love seeing all the the little gremlins from gremlins on the wing of that plane. But, you know, if you're (laughs) if you're a purist for the original Twilight Zone story, you want to see, you know, a different creature there. I get it. You don't want to see Mogwai? It didn't didn't need to be actual (laughs) gremlins. You know, I feel like he's kind of a one trick pony at that point. You know, and then he, you know, four Gremlin sequels later, of course, I'm going to think that, you know, so I guess within context, I feel like it's a 
it's a fair criticism. But you got to um, but you got to give him credit because then he gave us a great Odd Thomas movie. So, you know, again, another one of the top tier Dean thing. So it's you know, if, if that's what it took to get him there, then that's what it took to get him there. Well, fair enough. This movie is also notable because Ben Affleck is in it and he's playing a sheriff who's like Affleck looks like 12 years old in this straight, right. you know, <laughs> and he's decked out in like full sheriff gear. And it's just and not man, just any it, sheriff. It's like mountain town sheriff. Right. So he's got a cowboy hat and yeah, yeah the wool lining on the jacket, you know, right. like, yeah, you know, exactly. Like a mountain There's man. Zero, yeah. zero wrinkles on his face. He looks no. airbrushed. <laughs> I thought he was CGI at first. Like he looks yeah, like a really character in one of those fucking Marvel movies. You know, when they when they do that and they, you know, DA I forget who they I've only ever seen each of those ones once, but I know they did it in one of the movies and it was just embarrassing. Like, oh yeah. But anyway, the, the movie was directed by Joe Chappelle 15 years, almost exactly after the book's publication. And Joe Chappelle, like, did not have he did not go on to a, a a big directorial career. Phantoms wasn't received very well, apparently. Um, but yeah, he produced like yeah. a number of shows. I know we're all fans of like Fringe or mm-hmm. uh, The Wire. He produced yeah. that CSI Miami. Camille had a, a whole podcast about CSI Miami. So you must know who this guy is like right off the bat. Oh, yeah. I'm a big Joe Chappelle guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he did a show on Comedy Central, too, called The Joe Chappelle Show. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That was obviously very good until he decided to, you know, uh, pull the plug on that. But, yeah, CSM Miami podcast, you know, it's called The CSM Miami Files. Uh, it, it just uh, – I like it because it's CSI in Miami. Right. Right. If nothing else, you're getting a different environment. The next best thing to being in Miami is watching CSI Miami. Yeah. Or that Will Smith song. I do like that song. I'm a big fan of that song, which everyone knows. I would say in ranking number one, CSI Miami, then number two, the Will Smith song, then number three, being in Miami. Right. I agree with that ranking. Yeah. It's kind of sticky. Like when you're actually there, it's it's not as it's not as fun to to be honest. But I'm I'm a guy that doesn't like humidity, so Mm. Yeah, I can't. I I can't hang. And also another notable thing about this movie, this was a big year for Dean because he's got three adaptations coming out within that year. You know, this is the same year as Mr. Murder, Uh, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but that's one where Stephen Baldwin is the guy who gets cloned and then his clone turns out to be, you know, kind of stabby. And the other one is Watchers 4 with Mark Hamill. That's one of my favorite Watchers movies starring one of my favorite Luke Skywalkers. Oh, shit. Sky Watchers. How about yes, that? <laughs> That's a pretty good joke. All right. Okay, so, uh, Kamal, did you like this movie? And you can so be critical. We're, we're fine being critical here of, of the adaptations, just not the book. Okay. Yeah, because right. Dean himself is kind of critical of this one, too. So okay, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. That gives me permission. So I watched I watched Phantoms when it first came out. You know, I've been a horror fan my whole life, obviously, and I couldn't wait that there was a Dean adaptation coming out. Um, and it's interesting. I remember seriously w- when I watched this movie was the first time I remember thinking, "Oh, not all horror sci-fi needs to be explained." Hmm. And I didn't remember really. I remember having that criticism whenever the movie Phantoms came up, which you know comes up a lot. It's one of the biggest hits of that year. Mm-hmm. Um, that I always think 
they overexplain something and I don't remember specifically what it is. And then when I started watching it, the first like act is pretty good. I was like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is great. Like the first act is super solid. Like they go to the town, the town's empty. It's fucking creepy. Heads fall on pies. I am fully on board. <laughs> right. You guys know I love pies. I was going to say. I love decapitation. I knew you were looking so, out for those pies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, I can't wait to blend those up and get them in me. Uh, and uh, so I was like, wow, the first act is really good, right? And then those like sort of monsters show up and uh, and I think the monsters like the big moth thing. I think that's a cool attack. I think this movie makes a pretty substantial blunder and kind of a shocking blunder at the midpoint, which is you've got this town. You've got these people. Tra- it's empty. You've got like four or five people, however many there are, trapped in a building, surrounded by monsters they don't understand. This is a great setup. And then halfway through, the entire fucking army shows up and all the tension <laughs> completely dissipates. I don't understand what that decision was. It actually makes the budget higher. It loses focus. Suddenly you have all these people kind of ambling around. And then you have a guy show up, Peter O'Toole, big fan of Peter O'Toole. Instead of our characters discovering what's going on, which is this phantom has sort of read about itself and is high on his own supply and, and and thinks he's like, you know, this this entity and he's sort of bought into all this mythology about itself. It's it's getting ideas from monsters, from the, the posters that this guy has. Instead of them figuring all that out, we have like Professor Ex- Exposition Dump show up and just tell them exactly what's happening. So two right. things happen at the midpoint. These are heroes who were all alone and scared great setup suddenly there are all these new characters that we don't know or care about who make them feel a lot safer which isn't great that's not what you want in a horror movie you don't want to like breathe a massive sigh of relief halfway through the movie and also suddenly all this mystery that's been like set up really well is explained in one conversation so to me this is a movie of two halves you know there's some good creature effects like um at the end when <laughs> when when Leo Schreiber has those turd tentacles coming out of him, I was like, oh, this, yeah. looks, <laughs> this looks okay. But I just felt like it, it, the first half I was on board and then I just was, I was honestly, I was bored. Yeah. I don't think I was ever bored watching it, but I do, th- I do think it takes a dive in that second half. And speaking of Peter O'Toole, like, I could not shake the, f- like every time he's on screen, I'm just thinking you were in Lawrence of Arabia. How did you end up here? I, I was also taking note of the fact like you, there's a scene with him in his office, which is quite clearly the corner of a soundstage somewhere that they've dressed to look like an office. There's a scene where he's like in a car or something, and it's it doesn't even look like a real car. Like somehow they just faked a corner of it. Like it's so it's not that they had no budget on this movie. You know, it's a decent budget. The massive murder moth looks great. Yeah, right. I like the moth. There was more creature stuff in the book, and I think it could have used that. But they really do blow through all the tension that Dean builds up throughout the novel and sort of rush to that kind of feels like a revolution or or excuse me, a resolution once the uh, all of America shows up in this town. Yeah, totally. And there's no media coverage somehow. Like someone (laughs) someone didn't notice like, you know, 2000 soldiers descending upon this tiny town. Although I guess it's up in the mountains, so. Maybe they didn't. 
Yeah, I like when Phantoms calls them on the phone. Like I, I thought that yeah. was cool. You know, <laughs> are you calling the the ancient evil Phantoms? Yeah, the Phantoms. The Phantoms okay. calls them on the phone. I liked Phantoms' voice. That was a good, scary voice. I was like, I was actually on board for the first half. Eric, how, how was your experience? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I'm so tied to the book. It was so crucial to me and my formation growing up. So, of course, I'm going to be critical of this. And right, uh, but but you're right. They, they there are some some moments. I think Peter O'Toole does well for what he could. Uh, do with this character because it's so much more natural in the book, you know, all this exposition. But if you're going to have, you know, somebody do it, I guess Peter O'Toole's the guy you want for this role. That's right. That's um, right. But you know, it, it's, it's hard for me to not picture the book when I'm, when I'm watching this movie and, and seeing the failings. So like, I, I kind of had a bad time on this rewatch, but I was like with you where I was, I was trying to give it a, a, its own chance to view it on its own merits this time. And, Man, it's just it's just rough for me. Like I think the the acting's not great. I I really I know that it's a it's a nod to Dean's love of golden retrievers having these animals here, but he loves animals so much and the fact that they get torn apart all the time turning into monsters. Mm-hmm. I know that that was his idea, but it's it just feels disrespectful to me, especially yeah. in the wake of, you know, like he wrote a book about his love of dogs recently and and, you know, I don't know. It just felt like the wrong time. I mean, it's, you know, that might all be the, you know, the the weird Weinstein influence on, on this stuff, too. I, I actually found a quote from Dean where he was saying that um, uh, that he really liked Bob Weinstein personally. He never met Harvey because, of course, he somebody of Dean's caliber would never associate with somebody like that. Right. But he said that Bob had a dry sense of humor and working, but working with him was frustrating. His quote is to simplify the story. I was told to write a script with a $16 million budget in mind, which I did by the time a crew is in Colorado and sets are being built. I'm told to rewrite it for a $12 million budget, which I do during production. Bob keeps coming up with scenes. He thinks will be way cool. Uh, yeah, and I mean, really, are you going to come up with better scenes than Dean Koontz? Yeah. Get out of here, Bob Weinstein. Fucking idiot. Uh, they're never going to work in the story, but Bob wants them written in anyway, so I write them. And they're filmed and turn out not to enhance the story and are not used, which is the big problem I have with this movie. Um, he Dean went on to say he wasn't sure how much they ended up spending on the movie, but he's pretty sure it was 16 after all, uh, just because they kept mishandling everything. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know. It's a troubled pr- production and, you know, I'll always be upset about it and not being the the phantoms that, you know, I've lived with since I was like eight years old. Right. And, you know, the one that's it's hard in my to mind. separate a thing that, you know, you love so much from the reality of it when it gets translated to the screen, which is certainly right. something, you know, we've had to deal with on this show before. But I think my biggest beef with the whole thing is stripping out the Lovecraft stuff. Kamal, are you familiar with Lovecraft or like you a Lovecraft guy at all? Yes, okay. I know Lovecraft. Right. I did not realize because I have, you know, I uh, I was a big Phantoms movie fan first, so I haven't read the book. So the book has more Lovecrafty stuff in it. Yeah, well, it's in, it's implied that the ancient enemy might be Nyarlathotep, you know, for one thing. And you know, there's a character, a guy named Captain Arkham. You know, it's it, these are ah, like direct sure. nods to H.P. Lovecraft, who is uh, speaking of problematic characters, you know, problematic. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bone deep racist. You know, uh, I think stripping that stuff out of it gives it less teeth. And, right. you know, Dean gave it an edge 
in in the novel that's just not there in the movie. It's just this sort of amorphous blob that that lives underground and it can take the form of humans. And because you're not seeing a lot of the you know, like think about the thing, right? Like in the thing, you're seeing people transform very convincing with practical effects. I'm willing to bet they shot the thing on less money than this, and it looks 10 times better. We couldn't even get like, I know, you know, Kamel, you mentioned the scene with Leif Schreiber with the turd legs, but, you know, there's there's just not enough middle ground for me between the creature and becoming a person it's just kind of like right. a person shows up and you're and and you realize oh that's that's the ancient enemy you know right it, i mean the the advantage that the thing has is it's in one location and you have a pretty limited cast here it's a whole town so obviously that ups the budget and you just have so many more like people you have to pay it because this huge like extra cast shows up halfway through the movie. And you know, the dog thing is interesting. You bring it up because like just dogs are never good in a horror movie. Yeah, These people should have watched the thing. Don't like go pet the dog. The dog always has the evil inside it. The other thing I thought was weird was Ben Affleck's character when he's like, it's ego is its weakness. That's quite a leap. He's right. But how the <laughs> fuck did you get to that? Right. Yeah. We're going to flatter it to death when it becomes like the people NATO at the end. <laughs> yes. Tool, he like uses that strategy like that is flawed. I don't know how he got to that. I also think it's kind of funny how like, you know, once they roll in and once they set up shop inside that little trailer, it's basically just the high tech trailer from the lost world. Only not nearly right. as cool. You know, so it's just like a big black box sitting in the center of the street. It looks kind of futuristic because they made it look bulky, but it certainly didn't bring to life the images that I had in mind when I when I read the book. It felt underwhelming. Yeah, it's interesting because I realized like, you know, smaller can feel a lot bigger and bigger can feel a lot smaller. So when it's the movie's really focused and it's just a small group trapped in a place, the movie actually feels bigger. And then as all these people descend and you've got this trailer and, you know, it it just sort of feels like smaller and it feels cheaper. Like, you know, you said 16 million, Eric. The movie looks okay for that much money, at least the first half does. And then it just sort of even doesn't look as good. Like, obviously, the people NATO at the end looks pretty bad but that's sort of the dimension era cg effects where they were like oh my god these cg effects are amazing and now <laughs> yeah. so they really overused them you know in all their movies there's some like really fantastic movies that are kind of like the, the effects age so so poorly whereas something like the thing which is all practical still looks fucking great right. you haven't done a lot of horror work if any in your career and i'm can, can I'm, i tell you yeah. what that's about yeah yeah so I'm a big, big horror fan, and um, when I first started doing auditions and stuff, I would want to audition for horror, and my agent would be like, yeah, 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 and then this is true, this is true. Years later, he was like, he was basically like, I'm not going to let you audition for a horror movie. He was like... (laughs) It's true. It's and it's still true, man. It's still true. Like Why? they won't because he was saying Is this horror, your same agent you have now? Yeah, I've had the same guy forever, right? Like right from the beginning. I love him. He's fantastic. But he says he says that no matter how good it is, he sa- he thinks that industry still sees horror as like its own like 
it's in a ghetto. It's in its own place. And he says you can have huge horror movies that have actors in them that don't like go on to do anything else. And he's like, I know you love horror, but I kind of want you to not be in that genre because you can easily get like stuck in that genre then. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know I don't if I agree with him either. After all the years you put into that prop comic work and, you know, getting nominated for an Oscar, I feel like you've earned a little bit of cachet there. You know, you can make a horror. Look, what about a hereditary or or something like that? You know, that's oh, a sure. Yeah. yeah, I, 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 to me, you know, Emily and I actually were were going to hopefully be be writing a horror movie, but to us, horror has always felt like magic. Like we know how to write movies, we know how to structure movies, but like a really good horror movie, it feels a little bit like magic. Like like you you, you mentioned hereditary, big fan of uh, that that director, Love Midsommar. I don't know how to start writing a movie like that. Like. Or get out. Like, you know, those movies just feel, I don't know, even the horror is pretty similar to comedy. I feel pretty intimidated working in horror because I love it so much and it feels, it just feels difficult. It's hard to get right. That's, that's the it's problem. It's hard to get right, especially, right. Yeah. you know, yeah. and for us, we've been like, what about horror comedies? That's even harder to get right. There are what, right. Like five great horror comedies in the entirety of like the history of film or something. It's yeah. very hard to get right. Um, and that's why, you know, we, we all obviously love horror. We've seen so much horror. But how often do you see something that's truly great? It's it's still pretty rare. Okay, but I'm going to tell you this uh, with all sincerity. Your scene in Hell Baby where you get into the van <laughs> high and then have to drive up the street. We screened this in my backyard plex not too long ago for some folks. Uh, it is the funniest goddamn th- I laugh like it's my first time seeing it every time I see that fucking scene. It's so good. And also, I I, I really like that movie. It feels yeah, weird that, that it's not, really fun. It feels weird that it's not talked about more often because it's got everyone you fucking love in it. They're all killing it. And yeah. it's clearly made by people that understand the difference between horror comedy and what those things both share. You know, it. it I don't know. You say there's only five of them. If so, no, that's certainly more. one of them. You know, no, I love that movie. And uh, obviously a big fan of Tom and Ben. And I was, you know, they gave me that shot before I'd really done anything else. And I remember I got to set and they were like, we just came up with a great bit for your character. Like that bit was not in the script. They were like, <laughs> no you're going to get high and you're just going to walk really, really slowly across the street. They were like, that's the bit. And then you're going to get in the van and you're going to drive it very, very slowly down the street. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And it was one of those things. I don't know why you do it. And the first time you do it, you're like, this is really, really funny. I have no idea why. It's just a guy really slowly walking across the street. Were you laughing in the van as you're driving? I was. It, it was really hard to not laugh. Like, I was laughing in the van, and I was like, hey, you guys can't really see my face, right? Because I'm, like, laughing the entire time going really slowly. Um, yeah. I mean, that one's also, you know, that one's a, it, it, it strikes a tricky tone because it is in some ways, it is in some ways like a parody of horror movies. It is a send-up, too which is even harder to pull off than just like straight horror comedy. Like to me, you know, Shaun of the Dead or Slither are sort of like straight horror comedy where the mm-hmm. horror is is serious. It's not a parody, whereas Hell Baby is a bit of a parody. It's sort of like playing on those tropes in a different kind of way than Shaun of the Dead is. Uh, no, I love that movie. 
I should. I wish it was discussed more often. Yeah, it's a bummer, man. It's a real bummer. But you should be proud of it. It's a fucking funny ass movie, and it's got some good gore yeah. in it too. So well, and a, a good side effect, Kumail, of you becoming a giant star in the DC universe, though, is is your little part in that could shed some light. That's true. Within you know, to, to some of these earlier roles you took, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did another horror movie with another guy from that crew, uh, Ken Marino, a horror movie called Bad Milo. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that also has like that the, the creature effects in it are great. And there's some good gore in it, too. It's like a little puppet demon monster that they made. And it looks fucking yeah. awesome. It's a, Yeah, it's like an It's Alive riff. Yeah. Yeah. So do we have any final thoughts on on Phantoms? Not a not a very successful adaptation. Sounds like we. But there's a little bit of Dean in there that, that you can appreciate. It's, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of a middling effort, and and Dean would be the first to acknowledge that. But you know, it's it's kind of worth it just to see that group. I, I would like to talk before we wrap up a little bit on focus a little bit on on Leah Schreiber though, because it, everybody else in the movie kind of feels like they're play acting, like they're they're kids dressing up and playing, you know, playing <laughs> yeah, a horror movie, and yeah, that's true. and then Leah Schreiber like comes in and plays this super creep that then becomes the face of this evil for, for most of the second act or most of the last act. But he's doing like weird character ticks and like sweating a lot. And, you know, he's fully invested. Like I, I th- this was my takeaway on this rewatch. My big takeaway was just like, how good is Liev Schreiber in this movie? Yeah. He's the best thing in it for sure. He is always so good. He's one of like the never bads, you know. He's just right. like always, always good, never bad. And even in, yeah, he's like the best part of this movie. And it's not an easy part, like, because obviously he's a creep. But when he's on screen, the movie's alive, you know. Um, right. And he, like you said, he becomes, he starts off as like a deputy. Then he becomes the face of the evil. While he gets his face eaten off by a moth and then (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and then (laughs) and dies and then yeah comes back at the end i feel like i have definitely worked with a guy who's like Stu wargle the character he's (laughs) right you know like the kind (laughs) of kind of moist sweaty guy in the back of the room who's you know he's a fine worker but you don't want to go anywhere near him you know he's gonna say something he doesn't read social cues well right exactly likely to say something inappropriate that'll ruin your day and then you don't know how to deal with it because you can't yeah. talk to him like a if normal person. Yeah, if you have a friend come and visit at work and he's like, oh, what's her name? And then you have to tell her, like, please never come to work again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but no, he, he was great. And uh, he, he was in another movie that I love a lot called Goon. And uh, sure. And he, Kumail, you called him a never bad and that's exactly what he is. Like, even in the worst movies, he's... He's uh, the best. And, you know, so it's great to see him get to, you know, read some words that Dean wrote. That that was definitely a highlight on this rewatch for me. I think my favorite Leah Schreiber performance is maybe the, the Manchurian Candidate remake. I love that movie so fucking much. Right. And I think it's legit scary, that one, too, in a way that the original right, right. wasn't quite. Uh, but he is, man, he's really good at playing creepy and upsetting. I'll say that. <laughs> I am very curious since we, you know, have a connection to this movie now, like with Kumail as our guest on this, um, since you are in Justice League five, have you talked to Ben Affleck at all about Phantoms or or working with Dean Koontz? Oh, man, I didn't want to bring it up because uh, I I wouldn't know where to start. I would fan out, you know, and I'm because I'm such a huge fan of 
uh, Ben Affleck's originally from Phantoms, and so right. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be like a fanboy. I was like, once I really, really get to know him super well, then I can really like fan out. A uh, fanboy, but P H A N fanboy. That's yeah. right. I'm a fan. <laughs> a boy. Phantom, a phantom <laughs> boy. <laughs> I'm a phantom boy. That's right. And you know, but, you, you you signed on for six movies, so I got to wait till the end of these six movies to to be like, hey, by the way. Big fan. Right. I don't want to impose, but like we we would love to have Ben on the show to talk about his experiences here. So, you know, we don't like asking guests to make hookups and stuff yeah, we for, never for other do guests. That, but we never do it. But like I think that our way to get Dean eventually on the show is to get a name like Ben on here. That's true. So, you know, you can help make some some uh Dean Koontz nerds dreams come true. If you can uh, Some Dean maybe dream. try to work. It doesn't have to be right now. I know it's a, it's a delicate thing, uh, but you know, if you could work with on, on getting us uh, Ben Affleck, that would be a, a huge gift for us. I'm going to have to pretend like I'm not a fan of phantoms. Otherwise, like once that dam is open, there's just mm-hmm. no, like yeah. no, no stopping it, you know? Right. Uh, so, so I will do that, but I'm going to be like, Hey, there's some movie uh, that these, these guys like I've never heard of it. I've never seen it. Do you want to talk to them? So I'm gonna to have to pretend like I'm gonna to have to throw the movie under the bus just so I don't like lose myself. Totally. Which might be a good a good tag. He's a huge fan of Dean's work. We know that because he signed on to this movie. Uh, but you know, so the movie is almost incidental. I just want to geek out about Dean Koontz with him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm sure you'd have a lot. I'll hook you guys up. Okay, uh, that'd this, be that'd be awesome, man. This is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they've got coming up. Obviously, we know about JL Five, but is there anything else you can tell us about that you've got in the works? Well, you know, I'm going to be bringing back the CSM Miami podcast. Oh no, um, shit! Yeah, and then hopefully, you know, once everything opens up, I'm going. I'm bringing the. Uh, I'm bringing the uh, uh, trunk of props back out, and I'm gonna go on tour. It's all what? new jets, really all new props. Yeah, completely. You know, I'm like I've been like working a lot in quarantine, sort of getting things together. So yeah, I'm gonna be hitting the road. All new props, all new jokes, and uh, yeah, watch out for the CSM Miami d- podcast. I'm only on season 23 right now, so I have a lot of catching up to do. Fair. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, Emily barely- was also a prop comic and you were famously the king of prop comedy is there any sense of rivalry with you getting back into the business after all this time with emily yeah oh we're actually going to tour together we're going to call ourselves we're, we're, we're prop comedy royalty ah, and so we're really the king, the king and queen, and queen of, of prop comedy that's right that's right and uh you know we, we we work really well together as you know we've worked together a bunch and uh we work really well together sometimes you know and not just for like i'll make a prop and i'll be like hey emily i made you this ice cream scoop with a propeller on it and she'll immediately know <laughs> okay this that's is adorable that's this adorable. is gonna be hilarious or she'll Who make like me, that you know yeah like, she, she, she'll make me like a wheel with a shoe on it and i'll be like all right i'm picking up what you're putting down <laughs> right well you guys work together so perfectly on help my girlfriend is sick that i i think that you know this is only destined to be you know a real return to form and that's that's exciting it's and it's also exciting for us to be able to break that story on the show today well thanks for having me guys and i am gonna go watch phantoms again now yeah of course of course thank you for being with us many thanks to the great kumail nanjiani for joining us on this very spirited episode indeed uh great guest 
Love that, Kamel. Can't wait to see uh, Justice League 5, and I hope all the work he's been doing with those pies Oh, wait, wait, wait. Is, Scott, uh, Scott, shit, shit. Do you hear that? We're, I think we're losing signal strength. Fuck. All right, well, real quick. Next week on the Cast, we're dropping a hell of an interview episode with a very special guest, Stanley Kubrick, who, as you well know, is alive and well here in the opposite realm and still churning out films on an annual basis. Before we lose all signal, I really want to like kind of emphasize how big of a deal this is, because as all Koontz heads know, his next project is a star-studded gender-flipped remake of 1977's Demon Seed, uh, mm-hmm. which is headed to theaters just one month from now. This time around, Ryan Gosling's playing the Julie Christie part, and of course, the great Danny DeVito gives voice to the iconic Proteus, the dastardly computer who visits unspeakable evil upon Gosling's character. <laughs> That's going to be something. Really can't wait to see it and can't wait for y'all to hear it. 20% uh, 20 in dropping, Wampler. uh, Okay, well, uh, make sure to subscribe to our OnlyFans. Be sure to rate us on AltairFortunes.com. And don't forget to pick up your Cast keychains and fanny packs at the following address. HTTPS colon backstory.